Hi, my name is Simon Luckhurst, and this is Biological Poker, the first season of Ear Movies. This story is called The Other Anzac War. The genesis of this story was simply two nearby RSLs arguing over Anzac services. Not to a huge extent, but enough to aspire an idea, and I think it holds up pretty well. I've known Brett Hunt a long time now. He's a consummate performer, dedicated to his craft. Well, crafts, let's be honest. He's a bloody good actor, but he sings and plays the guitar as well. We really connected when we drove down the south coast of New South Wales a long time ago, while we were researching a play he wanted me to write about Vietnam veterans. It was eye-opening for both of us, even though Brett had lived it. His father was Frank Hunt, immortalised in the Red Gum song, I Was Only 19, in the line, Frankie kicked a mine the day that mankind kicked the moon. I wrote a play called The Unsheltered, which was produced by Michael Godby, and now Brett does a one-man show for schools about the war and its aftermath called Dust It Off. I've seen it more than once, and it's a powerful, honest account that brings me to tears every time. He was a natural to read The Other Anzac War. He's spot on with the country accents, and I love that even though 99% of the story came from my imagination, he kept giving me real-world examples of things he'd heard about that had actually taken place, just like in the story. So here's Brett Hunt reading The Other Anzac War. The other Anzac War. The veins on the back of my grandfather's hands were as tough as baling twine. Although I was just a kid, I looked for the stories in his hands. Papa Nan had a few thousand acres at a place called Manila on the other side of Tamworth. They lived in an old farmhouse with a low veranda. It was too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter. So Mum would time our visits for the autumn or spring. Twice a year would load the station wagon and head up there. Nana was famous for roasts and apple pies. Pop for his big smile, his laugh, his world-class farts and his stories. While he talked, those veiny hands would silently act out his words. I watched them, seeing the implements he was talking about. I'd feel the reins between my fingers because I could see how he held them. There was one other thing his hands had held, which I found during a game of hide and seek. I forgot all about hiding when I saw his 303. I knew he still used it because it wasn't rusty and it felt oily. It was heavy and smelled of fireworks, but would sneak in there when no one was around and aim at the Germans coming at me, firing away. <laughs> Pop must have known, because one evening he came into the bedroom. Most nights he'd tell us stories, and I was so proud because he always sat on my bed. Can you tell me about the war? I asked. I'd never seen Pop angry, but for a moment, just a moment, his eyes flared, and I thought I'd really upset him. You found my gun, haven't you? 
I nodded, petrified. Instead, he smiled, put his hand on my knee. Okay, I'll tell you about the war, but you have to promise me you'll never touch it again. Maybe I looked upset. I'll show you how to use it when you're old enough. I was thrilled and settled back into the bed. Even the girls shuffled in anticipation. He looked around the room. Mum and Nan were standing in the doorway as well. He looked at us in a glittering-eyed, ancient mariner kind of way. I'll tell you about a war far worse than anything that happened in France in 1917. I'm going to tell you about something that happened 20 years ago, back in the mid-60s. I'm going to tell you about the other Anzac War. He took his time topping up his pipe and he struck a match and lit it. He breathed the smoke in dramatically, knowing we were all watching him. This was like theatre, I realised, and this was his stage. The smoke from his pipe filled the room. We breathed in its dark, fruity, somehow relaxing smell. All wars are tragic things, but sometimes they can have happy endings. Up near the border are two towns about as far apart as Colorenabri and Walgut. One's called Reedy Creek and the other is Boorabri. The most active member of Reedy Creek RSL was Don Cutler. Don was old country stock and he'd come from Currabubula years earlier after marrying his wife Margie. She'd been a nurse in the tiny local hospital, watching the comings and goings of life while he worked on their property, watching the same ebb and flow. Don had fought in France. He'd been shelled and gassed and then invalided to England toward the end of the war. he caught the Spanish flu and survived. Margie had been his nurse, which is where they'd first met. He'd taken her to Reedy Creek with his soldier settler Grant and they'd built up their holding. They had two sons. Frank died in New Guinea in 1942, while Jimmy had stayed working with Don, too young to enlist. He'd been desperate to join up, but didn't turn 18, and the writing was clearly on the wall for the Japs. They all mourned the loss of Frank, a serious, dark-haired boy. He was a crack shot with a 22. Could do more on a horse, bareback, than most blokes could do with a saddle and bridle. Don's 2IC was Lance McEwen. They'd fought alongside each other in Bullcourt, Messines and Yeep. By the time of this story, he was over 70, but had bright eyes, a ready wit, and it was rumoured more than one girlfriend. Between Don and Lance, the annual Reedy Creek Anzac Day ceremony went off without a hitch. There was little alteration to the dawn service over the years, other than the inevitable changes due to the passage of time. Billy Barnes had blown his last, last post in 1959. He'd been replaced by Harry Hunter. The faces of the cadets changed as they moved on and were replaced. In somewhat of an irony, from 1962, Hans Groskopf who'd worked on the snowy scheme before coming north, now sang the national anthem in his thin, quivering baritone. While there had initially been some complaints about his German ancestry, he did an undeniably good job, being the only bloke around that could hold a note without needing a few schooners under his belt. He was also the only one who knew all the words. 
By the mid-60s, however, Don and Lance had a problem. They knew they weren't alone as they heard the same story at the annual RSL State Conference. Some services had dwindled to little more than ex-servicemen, their wives and immediate families. The bloody war in Vietnam wasn't helping. Like many others, Don and Lance couldn't see the point of the fight in Southeast Asia. And it wasn't a real war like the first and second ones. All it did was distract from their annual commemorations as the younger ones argued against it and any celebration of the military in general. It was something Don and Lance discussed at length with Vic Riley, who ran the nearby Boorabri sub-branch. Vic had seen action on the Somme, been commended for his efforts and had risen through the ranks to become a field lieutenant. He was characterised by the beret he wore and ran the newsagent. He was prone to long walks around the town and diligent landscaping efforts as he beautified the streets of Boorabri whether the council liked it or not. There were only two parks in the town and most visitors acknowledged Vic's work in their ornate stone retaining walls, sleep-aligned walkways and spectacular planting efforts. Vic was married to Ruth, a hard-lined woman, a two-pack-a-day smoker with a bubbly cough and roomy red-rimmed eyes. Ruth loved crosswords. She spent hours pulled over the paper, going through both the quick and the cryptic, nutting out the hard clues for as long as it took. Vic and Ruth had two sons. One had died in a Japanese POW camp in horrible conditions. The other was a merchant seaman torpedoed off the New South Wales south coast. Vic had been almost chubby before the war. Since the death, both he and Ruth had grown thin and almost gaunt. Vic had also become prone to long silences. Don was used to blokes like this, men who were summoned to places only they knew about at odd moments, sometimes in mid-conversation. Don and Lance and Vic were of the same school, old men who'd shared the intense experience of battle, who'd known loss. They knew how to save rather than ask for credit. They fixed things rather than bought new ones. They understood that sometimes you had to wait and that pain and work were part of life. That's just how they were. It was Don who fired the first shot in the new war they were all soon to participate in. It started after Don and Lance had shared a few beers with Vic in the front bar of the Cumberland, Boorabri's iconic wide verandah pub. They'd come there after the funeral of Mark Herbert. He was an old bastard and frankly, I'm glad he's gone, Vic told them, out of earshot of the majority of the mourners. Lance looked at his glass, but Don nodded. Can't say there's too many who disagree with you. He could be a royal pain in the ass. Owes me $200, Lance noted. I knew when I handed it to him I would never see it again, but he said it was for Merle. God knows that woman must have suffered over the years. The trio discussed Mark for a while longer and how he'd been quite decent when he was young and how they were proud to afford alongside him. Then conversation turned to their new favourite subject, especially at this time of the year. Falling attendances at the Anzac ceremonies. There's something I've been meaning to ask you, Vic said, looking over his glass at Don. He had intense eyes, Don thought. The kind that could look down the sights of a twenty-two and pull the trigger with no feeling, whether he was aiming at a bunny or a roo or one of his bloody old dogs. 
Vic rubbed at his grey goatee and looked deep into Don and then Lance. Given Burrabri and Reedy Creek are so close and that we face the same problem of dwindling numbers, maybe it makes sense to combine the services. Just have the one big one. Where would you do that? Don asked. I think it would be best to have it here, Vic said. Burrabri's bigger than Reedy Creek. But Reedy Creek has a larger service, Don said. Lance looked to both of them. Perhaps we could alternate. One here at Reedy, the next here, he suggested. What do you think, Don? Don looked to his schooner glass and then out the window. He thought of the Reedy Creek War Memorial, deserted on the day of days. He thought of the blokes and their wives standing around the Burrabri Memorial with a list of strangers. Not going to happen, Vic, he said. My boy's name is on the memorial at home. I couldn't just walk away from it, even for one year. Then Vic swooped like a wedgie on an isolated lamb. We could bring the memorial here and have all the names in one place. Lance looked across at Don and back to Vic. He took a quick sip of beer and then a longer one. Again, Don shook his head. I knew you'd be stubborn about it, Vic said, but you're going to have to face it sooner or later. Numbers are getting less and less. Burrabri's the logical place to have it. Reedy's dying anyway. You know it makes sense, Don. Don looked up and surprised the other two men by smiling. Maybe it's Burrabri that's on the way out, he said. The only reason you're bigger is that you got the rail. If they cut the trains, Burrabri's a goner. It'll be like Angledore. Vic laughed. They're never gonna cut the trains, he said. Can you think of all that grain being moved by truck? But mark my words, we're gonna be having this conversation again. All three men drained their glasses. To Mark, Lance said. To Mark, the old bastard, whispered Don, and Vic nodded. Don was quiet on the way home, pulled into the lay-by before boiling down creek. Vic's not going to let this rest, he said. He's like a bloody dingo who's got his sniff of a sheep. You'll need to preempt him, Lance said. Don nodded. You got a plan? Lancey, I think I bloody do. Later that evening, he called Margie from the kitchen. You know Terry Fletcher pretty well, don't you? I'm still on the P&C, even though I haven't had a kid in school for 50 years. Yeah, I reckon I do. I'd say he owes you then. Don's plan was modest enough. After all, this was only the opening skirmish of what was to become much larger. But it worked. On the night before the ceremony, Don and Lance and Reedy Creek's primary school principal, Terry Fletcher, dutifully lugged the old school's heavy PA equipment, comprising speakers that weighed a ton and an old valve amp, as well as the school's projector, and set them up near the memorial. 
Lance had organised with Keith Wilkins from the County Council so that a wire now hung down from the nearby power lines. Don't bloody electrocute yourself, Don hissed as Lance started to connect the plug. Maybe you should have got a bloody sparky, Lance hissed back. Margie and Lance's current companion, Kayleen Westborough, were tacking a sheet between two trees. Word of mouth that something different was going to happen dragged people out of bed who hadn't been to a service for years. They stood quietly before the service as they watched the rudimentary slideshow and listened to Don's comments about the landing. I reckon there's 50 people here, Lance told Don proudly. Don nodded. Let Vic shove that in his pipe and smoke it. The following year, Vic outflanked them. He borrowed the high school's 16mm projector and screened 40,000 horsemen before the service. Nearly a hundred people turned up, including a large group from Reedy Creek. Don and Lance looked at the few bedraggled stragglers who'd come to their own service. There was less than 20 people. This is only the beginning, Don whispered to Lance. If he wants a war, he's got a bloody war. Don and Margie's son, Jimmy, was a diligent worker who loved nothing more than saddling up Macy, his ancient chestnut, and riding the low hills behind the home paddock, searching for strays. He'd married Kimberly Walsh when he was 20 and she was 19. They'd taken over the shearers' quarters, surrendering their house each year to move in with Don and Margie during shearing season. Like Jimmy, Kimberly was not known as a talker. Whole evenings could pass by with barely a word. Kimberly would let him know his dinner was ready with a gesture towards the table. His requests for tea were a glance at the kitchen. Her letting him know it was bedtime was a nod in the direction of the bedroom. They had one daughter, Catherine, who was Don and Margie's only grandchild. From the moment she was born, she made noise. She gurgled contentedly all day. As soon as she could put two words together, she was off and running. Don used to say she could talk for Australia. Nothing was off limits when it came to conversation. She talked about dolls and sheep being slaughtered and all stops in between. Also in counterpoint to her parents, she was prone to being overly emotional. And there was nothing to see her go from bawling her eyes out to laughing her head off within a couple of minutes. It was generally agreed quite early on that she wouldn't stay living in the country. As much as they knew they'd miss her, both her parents and grandparents could tell from her marks at school that she was destined for university and a career away from the land. It was Catherine at Sydney Uni who Don now turned to. She was halfway through a degree, majoring in English and drama. Don found the number of the college she lived in. He drove into town, parked near the post office, waiting for Cindy Sattler to finish a call. Then he walked to the phone box and dialed the number with the heavy Bakelite handset pressed to his ear. Usually Margie handled the telephone calls, but this was too important. I'd like to talk to Catherine Cutler, please, he said, speaking slowly and deliberately in the way his father had taught him. A minute or two later, he heard Catherine's voice. He explained the situation. She told him to leave it to her. The year was celebrated with the usual country milestones. A cold winter, not enough rain, then too much rain, and a minor flood, and then a hotter than average summer. It was pretty much identical to every year on the land and carried with it the constant chorus of farmers complaining. 
Catherine arrived in Reedy Creek in mid-April with a minivan full of drama students, a sheaf of scripts and an enthusiasm that was infectious. On the advice of her grandfather, she operated in a clandestine manner and rehearsals were conducted in secret on a need-to-know basis. The local scouts and guides were recruited to the cause, as well as the two upper primary school classes and all 15 of Reedy Creek's high school students. There was some concern when Nathan Wilson was found taking notes after one rehearsal. During the intense questioning that followed, he broke down and confessed that not only was he operating under cover for Vic and the Borobri sub-branch, but that he was in fact under orders to sabotage Reedy Creek's event. The discovery of this agent provocateur had done seething, and Lance had to plead with him to calm down and not lock the boy up for the duration. April 24 was unseasonably cold, but the sky was clear. Catherine and her team plastered the town with the signs they had prepared, advertising the upcoming pre-dawn spectacle. Don and Lance and some of their mates put up the same signs in Boorabri in a lightning raid. By mid-morning, everyone in town knew of Reedy Creek's plans. Vic, who was planning to repeat his success of the previous year of 40,000 horsemen with Rats of Tobruk, was ropeable. He ranted against Don and raved against Lance. He railed against Nathan Wilson's betrayal, who had been eventually bribed into silence with a month's supply of musk sticks. Don could hardly sleep that night and was up and dressed by three. He drove into town and knocked loudly on Lance's door. He saw the grumpy face of his mate appear. Jeez, Cobber, I could have been on the job. No time for that, Lancey. We've got work to do. Lance, reluctantly dressed, said goodbye to Maple Worthington and headed into the pre-dawn darkness. The drama students were already at the memorial, erecting lights, setting up a PA and fixing costumes. Catherine was talking non-stop as she marshalled her established troops and organised her newer recruits. A trickle of school kids arrived, like flood water, they turned into a rush, and she had her hands full, ensuring they hit their marks as she drilled them under Don's stern eye. What she didn't know was that she was being watched by someone else as well. In the dark behind the toilets, David Evans, the earnest great-nephew of Vic and Ruth, was staring at her through a battered old pair of binoculars. Dave had been sent across the border by Vic. It also equipped him with an ancient two-way radio so he could report back to the Bullbri Central Command. Vic became more crestfallen with every report. Eventually, he sent orders to cancel Rats of Tobruk. Catherine's first production, which she called Before the Dawn, was staged appropriately enough just before dawn. It was a country town masterpiece. It told the story of a group of lads preparing to hit the beaches at Gallipoli. They spoke of their plans for after the war and sang a couple of old tunes to keep their spirits up. They all faced the wrath of a cranky sergeant who softened on the way to the beach when he handed out a rum ration and biscuits. It was generally agreed that the landing was staged very effectively. The school kids played the Hidden Turks. Sand bombs were thrown and a sound effects gramophone provided a scratchy and repeated simulation of guns and explosions. The real genius, it was commonly assented, was in the ethereal, beautiful chorus of voices that built over the course of the landing. 
As each young man died, they joined the first, so that an initial solo voice grew to become a 30-piece choir singing a song of lament and glory, of hopes dashed and young men demonstrating bravery and sacrifice. The tour de force was when the Turks joined the choir, and the kids' voices forming a poignant and beautiful counterpoint to that of the slightly older Anzacs. It's fair to say there wasn't a dry eye in the house. From near the toilet block, David Evans radioed his last report. Are you crying? asked an incredulous Vic. I can't help it, Uncle. It's beautiful. She really is. Did you say she? The whole thing, David lied, knowing as he spoke that in the short time he'd been watching Catherine, he'd fallen deeply in love with her. Like the determined commander he was, Vic spent a considerable amount of time planning his next campaign. He refused to release David from service, and the poor young man suffered many reprimands from his manager for all the personal calls made to the bank from his great-uncle. If Seth Thrower says one word about you talking to me during business hours, tell him his life membership of the club is instantly terminated, Vic shouted. David looked up to the face of the bewildered Mrs. Combo, waiting to deposit $15 into a bank book. In the end, David took extended leave and went to Melbourne, paid for by Victor, where he took a summer school in theatre. He found he loved writing for the stage and slowly, slowly began to put words on a page. He was a country boy with little education in the classics or the history of theatre, but he wrote with passion even if some of his inspiration was fear of the wrath of his great-uncle. The idea that developed into next year's Anzac spectacle was ambitious and on somewhat grand scale. Despite his lack of experience, he was certain it had never been attempted before. Don and Lance knew that Victor would retaliate. They'd spoken to Catherine and decided against another spectacle just yet. They were content to let Victor use up his resources as they plotted a counter-strike to take place 24 months later for what they'd hoped would be the definitive battle. Unknown to Don and Vic, another development was taking place. David had started writing to Catherine and they'd become pen pals. He said he'd seen her show and had been impressed and she was content to respond to his letters. Over the winter and into the summer, the tone of their correspondence became increasingly more ardent as they discovered how much they had in common. David kept his identity a secret, however, not wanting his alliance with Vic to upset Don's granddaughter. By late February, the signs were strong that Vic's April offensive was well underway. Don and Lance saw extra activity every time they visited Boorabri. Margie reported that the haberdashery had run out of calico. Lance saw the empty shelves in the newsagents where the poster paints were usually kept. 
When he inquired if he could order some, Sally Purvis looked decidedly shifty as she explained there wouldn't be any more coming in, possibly for months. Don saw the doors of the Burrabri Scout Hall kept shut on warm evenings despite lights being on inside. Saturday morning in Burrabri was usually a hive of activity. Don and Margie liked to drive there as well, preferring the wider aisles of the Pemuans to the small corner grocery in Reedy Creek. Also, Margie preferred the sausages at Dunn's. One morning in early April, she was surprised to find Ralph Dunn's 73-year-old mother, Millie, behind the counter, rather than Ralph himself. Ralph was known as something of a flirt, which everyone publicly complained about, despite most of the women secretly loving the winks, the pats on the shoulders, and the extra meat they'd find when they'd unwrapped their white paper bundles. And who didn't like a surprise sausage? Ralph, you around? Margie asked. Millie shook her head. Where is he? Millie looked up at Margie and then out the window. He said I had to work every Saturday morning until Anzac Day. Margie smiled. He must be doing something for the service. Millie started slicing up a side of lamb with a meat saw. There was a squeal as a spinning metal band sliced through the bone. Margie left the shop when the screen door banged loudly behind her. It sounded like Don's shotgun. The weeks that led up to Anzac Day saw tensions rise further. Don and Lance drove to Boorabriar for a joint meeting of the sub-branches, and they found they didn't have a quorum when all the Boorabriar blokes called in crook. Oh, kill flamin' Vic, Don growled. They stayed for a couple of schooners anyway. You reckon we should back off a bit? Lance asked. Do you reckon it might go too far? Anzac's a flaming tradition, Lancey, Don said, stubbing out his cigarette with yellow fingers. His pinky was missing, the result of an accident years before when a truck rim had rolled over it in a workshop. There's more people been coming to the ceremonies, Don pointed out. Attendance at other towns has been dwindling. Band bar is down to about three, but ours keeps growing. You and Vic don't want to stuff it up, though. We'll end up with nothing. Lance looked down at his empty schooner. Let's get going, he said. We'll be home before homicide if we leave now. And I'll be home before I commit one, Don said. Don was frustrated in the complete lack of intelligence he could obtain. Normally, country towns spill gossip faster than piglets spill milk from a trough. But on this occasion, there was nothing. Don took to driving to Burrabri at odd hours, hoping to surprise Vic, but every time he arrived, it appeared to be business as usual. One afternoon, however, when Vic greeted him as he parked, he realised what was happening. You've got an OP, haven't you? Vic just smiled. Where is it? Vic grinned again. What would I need an observation post for, Don? He said sweetly. If not for Catherine, Don wouldn't have found out anything until Anzac Day. Catherine and David had kept on riding and love was blossoming. Finally, they decided to meet in person. David had avoided it for fear Catherine would reject him once she found out his identity, but he couldn't go without seeing her any longer. One Friday, they arranged to meet in Narrabri. He'd pick her up there from the train and drive her the rest of the way home. He briefly considered buying her flowers, but knew he'd feel embarrassed holding them on the platform. The Northwest Mail came in and he waited for the passengers to clear. Eventually, they were the only two people left. I thought it would be you, she said. She looked at him, then to the ground. How did you know? He asked. She smiled. You kept looking at me during the reenactment when there was a whole war going on in front of you. 
and you know I'm Vic Riley's great nephew and I'm Don Cutler's granddaughter. So if it's okay for you, it's okay for me. It's not our war, she added. They walked to a milk bar. David was soon wolfing down a pie while Catherine sipped on a vanilla double malted. Granddad's desperate to know what Vic's planning, Catherine said. She reached over and stroked the back of David's hand. You know I can't tell you anything, David replied, turning over his hand so he could hold hers. I'm not asking you to, she said, smiling. We're like secret ambassadors for two warring countries. It's like being in bloody Romeo and Juliet, she said. She looked up at him, hoping he'd agree. To her relief, he nodded. They walked down to the riverbank and sat in the park, talking about theatre and people they knew in common, about anything other than what Vic had in store for Anzac Day. Have you ever been told not to think about something? If someone said to you, don't think of the word elephant, and then all you can think about is elephants. That's what it was like for them that day. Who knew that Narrabri was so overrun with bloody elephants? It was only as they were parting, after he'd driven her to Reedy Creek, that he let something slip. Catherine asked if she could ring him later. Can't, we're rehearsing, he said. Then he kissed her for the first time. When she got home, Don was sitting silently in the kitchen, gripping a mug of tea. He hadn't even noticed Catherine's arrival. He's very worried about the war, Margie said. Surely the government will pull the troops out, Catherine said. Not Vietnam, bloody Borobri, Margie said. Catherine was surprised. Margie rarely swore, and when she did, it was either out of sheer joy like winning at Housie or at frustration with Don. I'm worried he's going to have a stroke. He and Lance have tried every way under the sun to find out what Vic's up to, and we haven't learned a bloody thing, Don interjected. Catherine looked at a pot, sitting there with a worried look on his face. Had he lost weight? Was his hair whiter? His mouth was stern and his eyes looked sad? They looked the way they'd looked on Frankie's birthday or after a few drinks at Christmas when they'd make a toast to him. At that moment, she made up her mind. She told him about the planned rehearsal, was instantly rewarded by seeing a broad smile stretch across his craggy face. I'll get the bastard yet. He strode to the door and grabbed his hat. I'm going round to Lancey's, he said. Don was out of the house with a spring in his step that belied his age. Catherine watched as he hurried to his holden. Margie rushed to the door. Don't do anything stupid, you old fool, she called out. Two hours later, Don and Lance were huddled in the long grass at the end of Burrabri's Oval. They dressed in dull green and had blackened their faces for good measure. Like a pair of regular bloody spies, Lance said. Don had his binoculars up. What the hell? he asked. Lance grabbed the binoculars and without removing the strap from Don's neck, he peered through the lenses. Are they in dresses? Before they had a chance to find out for certain, they heard someone clear their throat. Both turned around slowly and saw Billy Tuck, the local police sergeant, standing behind them. Next to him was Vic Riley. Vic's face carried a broad smile. Bloody hell, you've got an OP on the back road too. What's going on here? asked Billy, looking down at Don and Lance on the ground. Just a spot of bird watching said Lance. The kind of birds you're known for, Lance McKeown, aren't around these parts, Billy said. Vic's smile grew wider. What are you flaming up to? Don asked. Vic looked to Billy and back to Don. You'll find out in two days, Vic said. I think you should head back to reading now, 
Billy added, also laughing. Don started wiping the black from his face onto his hanky. Don't think this is the end of it, Vic, he hissed. Go on, Jackie Jackie and his mate, off you go, Vic told them. Crestfallen, Don and Lance hobbled back to Don's car, sore from the time they'd spent on the ground. By all accounts, the performance at Boorabri War Memorial two mornings later was something to behold. Don and Lance and a few others stayed behind at Reedy Creek, so there was still a ceremony there. But nearly everyone else in town travelled to Boorabri, including Catherine. No one had ever seen a reenactment of the Gallipoli Landing as interpretive dance before, and it's probably fair to say that no one has seen one since. That morning, I saw a performance to remember. It started with the sound of a single drum. Lights came up on blue silk spread over the ground, representing the sea. The first drum was joined by another, and another, and soon a whole ensemble. They became louder, and the tension rose as the tempo increased. A hundred local youths in long brown robes appeared and started to undulate. There was no other word for it. Across the sea. More lights came up, these ones shining off a calico cliff erected over metal poles. An equal number of kids in darker brown robes now emerged, climbing slowly down the scaffolding. A writhing sea of bodies. The first waves coming from the sea met the second, briefly mingled, and then spread apart again. And so it went on for the next twenty minutes, with a vignette that included a party do between General Hamilton and Camel Ataturk, as well as a comic waltz between Simpson and his donkey. The production built to a powerful, poignant conclusion, as the drums crescendoed wildly before going quiet, as the remnants of the Anzac force disappeared into the dark. On the shore, before the cliffs, lay the pride of Burabri youth pretending to be dead. Slowly the lights dimmed and the crowd went wild. Catherine found David and hugged him as tightly as she could, and she barely had time to congratulate him before the ceremony proper began. few months, Don spent hours in silent thought as he plotted his next offensive. He was a farmer who had once been a soldier, and he was out of his depth when it came to planning public performances. He nearly drove Margie mad with demands for twenty-cent pieces as he took to calling Catherine, now back at uni, at first weekly and then as their plan formed and began to crystallise almost nightly. By late October, the idea was set and he began the first wave of his campaign. It's usually hard to collect money when you don't want to tell people what you're going to do with it, but Don found, to his surprise, that no one asked. Perhaps fundraising is such an ingrained part of rural Australia that very few questioned the reason for another raffle or sausage sizzle. The few that did ask appeared satisfied that the money was going towards the Anzac Day thing. Don ran a few housing nights, 
held a gumboot tossing stall at the local show and routinely took a bucket through the pub around five on Friday afternoons, pissing off Derek Palmer, the salvos captain from Brewerbry, who usually didn't make it to Reedy Creek until after six. Meanwhile, in Sydney, Catherine worked hard on her end of the project. She contacted singers, actors and musicians and soon had a core group of committed performers who met every Thursday as they began to devise what became known, at least to her, Don, Margie and Lance, as Project X. January 1967 was warmer than usual, both in Sydney and in Reedy Creek. Catherine had decided that she would use the summer holidays as a chance to refine her concept for the Anzac commemoration. She included David in her plans. He'd resisted at first out of loyalty to his great uncle, but with the alternative of not assisting being enforced absence from Catherine, he eventually chosen to help her. Don had wanted to come to Sydney to see how Catherine's work was progressing, but he wasn't big on travel at the best of times, and Catherine was keen for him to stay away, and not just because she knew that David's involvement would upset him. By now, Project X involved well over 50 people. Catherine had started with a script, but this had quickly been discarded. Instead, a group-devised piece was created during weekly development sessions. Her own role had become somewhat ambiguous, as there were many among the troupe who resisted the idea of one person controlling the end result. Writers, directors and producers were not welcome in the hall they'd rented in Redfern. They'd built props here, played music loudly, smoked joints and sometimes worked on the production. David had been worried about the process when he'd first joined Catherine, but like her, had bowed to the inevitable. They were ultimately helped by the fact they had a structure. They couldn't divert too far from the history of Gallipoli. There were some among the ensemble who resisted what they saw as a celebration of the military, citing Vietnam and conscription. Catherine sympathised with some of their arguments, but kept drawing them back to Anzac. Then one afternoon it all exploded, and it was David, quietly spoken, struggled to find his words, country drawl David, who stood up and put them in their place. What Catherine wants to do is commemorate the efforts of our grandfathers and the others who fought for us, he said. Let's not forget that some never came home. We're doing it for them, not to celebrate the knobs in Canberra. He looked around the room. All eyes were on him, and he knew he had one more weapon in his arsenal. He cleared his throat, and he looked resolved. Also, Catherine's granddad has raised enough money to pay us. So there's that too he said. The room was quiet after he'd finished talking, but then, suddenly, applause. Not the slow build of a single hand clap being joined by others, but an instant widespread acknowledgement. From that moment, the production came together quickly. David wrote some lyrics, the band came up with music, Catherine rehearsed the troupe, and a girl who said her name was Rainbow choreographed the entire show. Had the pre-dawn performance in Reedy Creek been witnessed by more than the 450 people who stood there spellbound, it might have been later recognised as one of Australia's first and best rock musicals. Strident electric guitars accompanied the reenactment of the landing. A bass guitar underscored every explosion in an almost hypnotic rhythm. Pounding drums recreated charge and countercharge, and a lament by a chorus of flutes 
transformed at the end of the show to a bugle playing the last post. This was joined by the whole rock orchestra and a vocal ensemble. No one appeared to mind that they'd arise at 3.30am to see the entire performance. It was emotional and powerful and moving, and then told the story of Anzac with an emotional truth the audience was never to see again. Don was spellbound, mouth agape, fat sausage fingers massaging his palms in awe. He carried a broad grin for several days afterwards, and it was known to reappear sporadically at random occasions for quite a few months to come. One time, it appeared quite widely, was when he saw Vic about two weeks later. You think you've bloody won, but you haven't, Vic said. He didn't say anything else for the entire meeting. Don found out via Catherine that Vic had summoned David to his house the day after the ceremony. David said he'd been worried for his great uncle, and that he'd turned bright red as he'd shouted. David didn't mention his own involvement. Vic was more determined than ever not to be outdone by Don, and swore that next year would settle the matter. Catherine came home in August, and she and David went down to the riverbank. He threw in a line. He was hoping for a cod or a yellow belly, although secretly he was just content to be alone with her. And he turned to her. I think the war between Boorabri and Reedy Creek should end, he said. What if neither of us helped out? Would that end it, you think? He asked. Catherine shook her head. It's gone too far. They'd find another way. Unless something drastic happens, it's going to continue for years. She leaned over to him and kissed him hard on the mouth, surprising him. He pulled back, smiling, and looked into her eyes. I don't think I've ever seen anyone prettier than you, he said, right now, on this warm evening, with the river in front of us and the wind in the trees. I reckon it's as near as heaven as a bloke would ever want to be. Catherine said later she thought he was going to propose, but perhaps it wasn't the right time yet, or he simply hadn't had the chance to buy a ring. Instead, he stood up and scurried around the grass and eventually found a piece of rusty 10-gauge fencing wire which he shaped into a roughly made bangle. A week later, she went back to uni. Two days after that, he received his draft notice and in January was killed by a sniper in Phuc Thuy province. His commemorative service in Boorabri was the first time since the previous April that Don and Vic had spoken to each other. Don put his hands on his old mate's shoulder. It's a bugger of a thing, Don said. Yeah, it's a bugger all right, Vic replied. Vic and Don both paused to wipe the small tears that had dared to intrude on their faces. You're an old bastard, Don said, smiling for the first time in several days. And you're an arsehole, Vic told him. Don was pleased to see Vic smile back. Days passed, and Don's mind kept turning to the upcoming Anzac ceremony. 
He knew that David's death would inspire Vic more than ever. Without David, however, Vic had lost a senior tactician, and this was one of the things on his mind when he brought Catherine into the kitchen one day. How are you holding up, love? he asked. Not so good, Pop. Yep, don't imagine you would be. He'd seen her cry and shout and scream in the preceding fortnight, but her eternal question of why, why, why had been asked and unanswered too many times for her to repeat it again now. This may not be the right time, Don said, watching her face closely. Catherine's eyes flared up, looking at Don and then down to the table. The right time for what? she asked. I think Vic could use a hand, he said. I think this year, of all years. If you want to do something for the Borobri service, you know, in honour of Dave. He let the words fall, waiting for a reply that didn't come that evening. And in fact, it didn't arrive for over a week. I called Vic Riley this afternoon, Catherine said to Don as they sat at the table for dinner on the following Wednesday. Don hated eating at the moment. The previously chatty meals were now little more than opportunities for silent mourning. Did you? Margie asked with a worried expression. It's okay, Nan. Pop said I should. I'm going to help with Vic's service this year. Margie looked to Don, who kept his eyes to his lamb chops, and back to Catherine. If you want to do it, love, then I think you should, Margie said. Don nodded. You do your best, girl, he whispered. Once again, Don started pacing the hallway, wondering what Vic would pull out of the bag this time with his own granddaughter's assistance. Lance came over most nights, and he and Margie would join Don for gin rummy around the dining room table. Unlike previous years, Don made no attempt to infiltrate the defences he was certain Vic had erected against him. Let him have his bloody turn, he growled. We'll come up with something even better next year, won't we, Lancey? If you say so, mate. Lance replied. The Reedy Creek Anzac Day ceremony that year was tiny. Don and Lance and about half a dozen blokes loyal to the memorial for family reasons, as well as Shirley Ferris, who wouldn't miss a service but was too old to travel, even to Boorabri. It wasn't until Margie returned, at about eight o'clock, with a cold-eyed Catherine in tow, that Don and Lance heard about the Boorabri pre-dawn service. They waited until Catherine went to her room, and then Margie turned to Don and Lance. I didn't know what to expect, she said. I think it's fair to say all the crowd had anticipation. The Bride dance piece was so good the year before and, and I knew they'd want to top our musical. They didn't have Davy, but they had Catherine. Really, I didn't know where it would go. Well, you know now, you've seen it. So get on with it, Don said. She told me in the car it was called a son a lumiere. Have you ever heard of a son a lumiere, Don? She paused and looked to Don and Lance, where their faces were equally blank, and she continued speaking before Don had a chance to prompt her again. She must have brought in a ton of lights and a whole truckload of speakers and maybe 20 of them reel-to-reel tape recorders. The noise, Don. You've never heard anything like it. Don remembered the dark days of France and the sound of the artillery and shivered. She played it top four. Guns and explosions going off like we were there in the middle of them and these bright lights. 
Strobe, she called them. Flash, flash, flash. My eyes were burned. You've never, well, I've never known the noise of it. Don, I think it was like being at Gallipoli. Molly Perkins fainted in the first two minutes. Gladys Phipps dragged her boys away and more followed. You could barely think with the noise. Vic looked fit to burst. The lights kept flashing. Half the time we were blinded, and all the while everything got louder and louder. The earth felt like it was shaking, and then we heard a clinking sound I'd never want to be so close to again. Johnny Dawkins' two bulldozers were heading right for us. We were already against the memorial, and I was scared, Don. I thought they were going to run us over, and they were pushing something, Dal. What were they pushing? Margie paused, looking again to the eyes of both men. A huge stack of skinned sheep. Oh, these bodies without legs, heads without bodies, loose limbs tumbling down. Women were screaming, men were shouting, but the bodies kept sliding over the grass towards us. Someone, I'm guessing it was Vic, must have found the controls to the PA because the speakers cut out suddenly, and all we could hear were the engines roaring and the sounds of the tracks. Then they just stopped. You've never heard it so quiet, Don. Then clear as crystal. The only words during the whole thing when Catherine screamed out, Lambs to the slaughter! Don subtly wiped a tear from his cheek, and then Margie spoke again. That was the end of the performance, but it wasn't the end of what happened. Vic strode over to Catherine, and I thought he was going to slap her. But she looked up at him, and he looked at her, and Don... He put his arms right round her. One look at her and he just melted. Jeez, Don said. But that still wasn't all, Margie said. Well, tell us. Norm Swanson from the council started shouting about how they'd desecrated Anzac. It's still only 5am by now, so there's lots of time to clean up before the service, but he's yelling at Catherine and she's in tears and he wasn't going to bloody stop, Dahl. I didn't think he was ever going to stop till Vic reached back and passed him bang on the nose. Knocked him right to the ground. I'd wish I'd been there, Don said. I'd have given anything to see that. We all pitched in and cleaned up. We had the ceremony and Don, you could have heard a pin drop during the whole thing. She made a statement all right. She said her piece and you'd have been bloody proud of her. I am bloody proud, Don said. I need tea, Margie said. I'm going to put the kettle on. Make us a cup, will you, love? Don asked. And one for Lancy? Margie took a step away and then turned back to Don. You knew she'd go too far, didn't you? You knew this would be the end of the war. I had a hunch, Don said. You're an old bastard, Margie told him. She needed to get it out of her system, Don said. That was the end of the other Anzac War. And for Catherine, it was the start of her healing as well. She never completely got Dave out of her system, but she married in good time, a bloke called Pete Smith, and she's middle-aged now. They live out on the Dandry Road with their two kids. Vic and Don made up. Not long after that, the rail closed and Burrabri shrank to nearly nothing. Then they sealed the highway to Moree, so everyone started shopping there, and Reedy Creek just about died as well. You'd be hard-pressed to find them on a map these days. Vic died a few years later. Don, Margie, Lance, they're all gone now, too. One interesting thing, though. If you go to Burrabri and look on the memorial, 
you'll see the name David Evans painted in gold on it, as bold and as bright as all the other diggers. But Catherine never went back to Burrabri, and that's why, if you go to Reedy Creek, you'll see his name on that memorial too. It's on the hardwood frame, and it looks like it's been scratched into it by a piece of old ten-gauge. Pop stopped talking. He'd taken us on a journey. Now we're back in our bedroom. I think we're all thinking of Catherine, inscribing the name of the man she'd loved who'd gone to war and died with the bracelet he'd given her that afternoon on the riverbank when they were so happy. Then we thought of the blokes who hadn't come back from all the other wars, and the wives, and the parents, and brothers and sisters and mates who had waited for them. We all started blubbering then, including me. Even Pop wiped a tear from his cheek. I thought you said this story had a happy ending, Mum said, going to the girls and cuddling them. It does, Pop said. Because of them, we're here, aren't we? We're all bloody here. That was Brett Hunt reading The Other Anzac War. Please like Ear Movies or rate it or whatever your podcast platform has set up to say you enjoyed it or even just tell your friends. And come back for more of Biological Poker, Season 1 of Ear Movies. I'm Simon Luckhurst. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.